MJ, do you play video games? Uh, not really. The last game I played was probably Kingdom Hearts back in like 2005. Okay, that's not like so ancient. Did your students ever play games in the classroom? Uh, not unless they were uh, distracting themselves from my illustrious teachings, but why do you ask? I was thinking about video game design, like how the process changes when you have a learning objective versus an entertainment one, and how you teach yourself to think of a whole project in a different way. Now, you yourself, you played video games, right? Or did you design them? Yes to play, no to design. But I was down at E3 recently, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, which is like the biggest video game show in America. Mm -hmm. And I was seeing demonstrations of next year's video games, so both of those things were on my mind. And education-wise? Uh, not a lot of educational games. Certainly things that will make their way into the classroom. There was Lego Worlds, which I think is Lego's answer to Minecraft. And then there's the next Civilization game. But nothing made for the classroom. It doesn't seem like the industry is very into edutainment. But you do think that video games can teach, sure, right? Sure, sure. I feel like I learned a lot from video games. I mean, there's logical thinking and playing puzzle games. I learned a lot about narrative character arc from role-playing games. I don't ever think that was my intention, though. Well, what do you think happens when you intend to learn by playing a game? Or what, what happens when you design a game? Well, as for design, I think you can learn a lot. And I talked to two game design students at E3 from Southern Methodist University's Guildhall program. It's their video game design program. I asked them about their academic journeys, their personal journeys, and what brought them to create their game, which is called Gravitas. They were part of this college gaming competition. And you play as a young space traveler trapped in a mad artist gallery in Gravitas. Okay, so wait, hold on. You mentioned journey a minute ago. What do you mean by journey? Well, Alex Schultz, the game's technical designer and the writer, was denied the role of lead game designer. So he scheduled meetings with all his professors to discuss his shortcomings. He had to work on the team that initially rejected him as its leader. Whoa. Taylor Pate, one of the artists in the game, said she learned social skills through video games as a young student. She said she's naturally quiet, but talking about what games she was playing with her friends was an easy social outlet. Okay, so I don't think I quite understand those quests as someone who's never played many video games. I've never even really thought about the role of the game designer, and I didn't know that you could actually study to be one, though. But this is something pretty intriguing, so I'm excited to get to it. But first, the news. I'm Mary Jo Matta. And I'm Blake Montgomery. Welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast. Some companies harp that the skills gap between their needs and potential hires is troubled water. Village Capital, a DC-based VC firm, is laying a bridge to better connect education and employment with a three-month program for 12 startups addressing that gap. After three weekend workshops flush with business advice and industry expertise, two of the startups will claim $75,000 each. Applications are open now. With more than 65 million users in 300,000 schools, EdTech company Edmodo boasts the sort of viral adoption that makes investors salivate. Yet, finding a stable revenue source has proven elusive for the startup, which was founded in 2008. Its challenge raises a big question for the freemium approach. How can an EdTech company convert virality into financial sustainability when neither its users, in this case teachers and students, nor the organization, in this case schools and districts, 
are willing to pay money. Ed Surge's Tony Wan spoke to the leaders of Edmodo and found that they themselves are struggling to answer this question. Female workers make only 79 cents for every dollar earned by men, according to the U.S. Senate's Joint Economic Committee. But does this inequity persist in the nonprofit education sector? Inspired by Nonprofit Compensation Associates' annual compensation report, Ed Surge's own Mary Jo Matta examined 990 forms from a dozen leading Northern California education nonprofits and found some intriguing and all somewhat alarming trends, including a big pay gap. Specifically, the average male nonprofit leader in education makes $38,000 more per year than the average female nonprofit leader. User experience design is one of the hottest jobs in tech. Instructional design is experiencing similar levels of demand in higher education. On EdSurge this week, Whitney Kilgore, Chief Academic Officer at iDesign, says we're witnessing the marriage of these two fields. Learner experience designers merge design thinking principles with curriculum development and the application of emerging technologies, she writes. No, you don't need tech to do project-based learning, but with the right tech, student and teacher creativity can flourish. EdSurge learned that at PBL World last week in Napa, and we encountered 14 tools that are making a difference. Here's an example. CraftEd Curriculum is a marketplace of teaching strategies and lessons aligned to Hewlett's deeper learning competencies and the Common Core, while Piper is a computer kit that enables students to build genuine electronic circuits and learn about computers through Minecraft. And speaking of Piper, let's get to the ka-chings. Venture capitalists made some big, big bets on Piper this week. The San Francisco-based company behind Piper has raised $2.1 million in seed funding from Princeton University, Reach Capital, 500 Startups, Founders X Fund, and others. Fun fact, Piper was conceived in a malaria fever dream. Andela wants to unleash Africa's pool of software engineering talent, and so too do Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan. The New York City-based startup has raised $24 million in a Series B round led by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, the fund's first lead investment. Founded in 2014, Andela offers highly selective programs in Lagos and Nairobi that recruit, train, and place engineers in Fortune 500 companies. Okay, so what does it mean to be a game designer, and how do you actually study to be one? A game designer leads the teams that create video games. He coordinates across teams. Or she. Mostly he, but yes. Okay. Coordinates across teams and makes sure that the game is cohesive. And you said Alex Schultz was the game designer for this artistic gravity game? It's called Gravitas. Mm. You're trying your best to escape a mad artist gallery using your gravity powers in space. And no, Alex actually wasn't the game designer. He wanted to be, and he thought he was qualified to be, but his school thought otherwise. Whoa, drama. So what happened exactly? You'll see. Here's Alex and me at E3. Great. Um, so first, can you just tell me your name and the name of your game and what you did on the game? Sure. Uh, my name is Alex Schultz. I'm a technical designer on the student game Gravitas. And uh, my personal role in the project was basically all things the narrator, uh, the curator character, 
uh, and the writing of the game. Uh, I worked heavily with uh, the artist Taylor Pate, who actually made the model uh, She Was She, the voice in the sky that you see, and uh, I worked with her a lot to define both of the characters, and I basically created the curator's uh, identity and put him into the game with a lot of all of his splines he moves on and his little animations and stuff. Basically, all of his personality was uh, was heavily in part done by me, uh, and I did all of the writing for the game. Um, so yeah, and, I, and we've gotten a lot of good feedback on that. Uh, it could be funnier, and I personally hate all of it, but apparently every writer hates all their work, so that's like normal. That's That's probably a good sign. That's normal for journalists as well. <laughs> um, so can you, what, is, what does it mean to be a technical designer? I'm not familiar. Uh, so technical designers basically, it's sort of a new thing that's arising because being a level designer solely is not good enough anymore. Everybody wants you to be a little bit more uh, multifaceted, a little bit more technologically competent. So basically a technical designer is just a designer that can code. Uh, I actually had a CS, a computer science background in my undergrad and I didn't love it enough to be a strict programmer, but taking that into developing gameplay mechanics and creating gameplay systems and doing systems design uh, was very fun. Uh, and so basically, like, I love prototyping mechanics, and I do a lot of that with visual scripting, like Blueprint and Unreal 4, which we made Gravitas in, or uh, Unity, I do a lot in C Sharp and stuff like that. It's more high-level stuff that doesn't require me to mess around with ones and zeros. I can basically just think about high-level systems and implement them quickly and rapidly and iterate on them a lot. It's very fun. So what kind of systems did you implement and then had to change for Gravitas, especially for the curator? Because that seems like a really central character, the crazy guy. Uh, so uh, basically everything involving his behavior in the, in the game was some sort of a system that I designed and built. I worked with a programmer named Henry Dye who did a fantastic job. Uh, he built sort of the initial spline system and then I took it from him and just went apeshit with it. Uh, he has uh, several components uh, and they all have uh, special actions that they can trigger. He has triggers in the environment. He has splines he can move along. The splines can be told to follow the player, so he won't actually move along it. He'll like move beyond the spline as close to the player as he possibly can. Uh, I He has a giant behavior stack, which is just this ladder list of things. You can't see it, but I'm doing a cool ladder thing with my hands. But basically, it's, it's a giant uh, first in, first out list of uh, commands that just stack on top of each other and then it takes the one off the top of the list and tells them to do things. Sorry, for, first and last out. And um, that's computer science terms. And uh, so uh, anytime he touches something, uh, there's this giant set of commands that get put onto a giant stack and then it pops them off and each command is like, how long do you look at this? What is your expression? What's the bloom of your expression? What's the color of your expression? Um, what are you saying? What are What is your animation that's playing relative to what you're saying? So he, every one of those nodes has a lot of information and they pass it on to a greater system that tells him how to move through the environment and where to go. Uh, and I basically built a very large majority of that in conjunction with a programmer and with uh, Taylor Pate again, who, as I said before, worked on the curator art. And on the writing side, can you tell me a little bit about the curator's character? You've told me about his code. <laughs> I did. Uh, so the curator is, I'd like to believe that he's not me at all. <laughs> uh, but so I, I said this at the uh, the presentation for exhibition that we showed at our, actually at our, our grad program to all of our parents that came and saw what we did. Uh, Creating a character that's a narrator uh, for a game is very difficult because you have to create something that is separate from yourself but that you know better than yourself and that's very difficult to write for because it is incredibly easy to just write yourself and you have to not do that. And uh, 
I'm again, like I said, I'd like to believe there's less of myself in the curator than there probably is. But he's uh, a mad artist, basically. Uh, not necessarily mad, but definitely quirky. Uh, he, we never disclose whether or not he's a person controlling the robot or whether or not he's like in the robot or an AI, uh, and we never will. That's a huge part of the mystery, fun of the game. But um, basically, he is this uh, really high concept modern artist that is fed up with how like sellout all art has become and he has moved to a separate facility in space where he can just bring pupils to see his new take on art and he works a lot with technology to try and bring life to his artwork and uh, his new thing is manipulating fundamental laws of the universe for the sake of aesthetics and he gets his hand on gravity manipulation technology and creates the gallery of refined gravity which is the the setting of the game you play in and he has all of these exhibits that you must solve in order to appreciate and it took the form of a puzzle game and it lended itself very well to the level design and the aesthetics of that and um, it, it wrapped, everything wrapped up really nicely in this sort of journey with this kind of like, you get the sense he's been alone for a long time and has kind of gone a little bit insane. He takes death very lightly because it just kind of happens sometimes and he's immortal probably so he doesn't really get it. Uh, and he has a lot of quirks to his personality like that. But um, yeah, he was, he was definitely a very fun character to create. <laughs> That's awesome. And what role did SMU play in supporting you guys uh, for this competition and also for creating game? Uh, this competition was a little bit less than I would have liked. They actually had not heard of the E3 competition before, or if they had, they didn't tell us about it. And uh, we as a, as a team suggested, hey, maybe we should try and get more uh, word out about our school. Because despite being number two in the nation for game development, not a lot of people know what Guildhall is. Uh, because uh, we aren't as, like, I don't want to say squeaky wheel, it's not politics, but, like, USC and DigiPen have a lot more connections and are a lot more, like, present in the game development sphere than Guildhall is, and I wish we could change that, because it really is a great program. Uh, and they, uh, we used this opportunity to try and get some publicity, because we're like, let's go to E3, we'll take a thing, and we got selected and we're here, and they handled a lot of the legal stuff because um, there was a possibility that sending it to this competition would uh, give E3 the rights to the game, and they were like, uh-uh, we're not doing that. So we had to, E3's legal and our legal had to, like, take a little bit of time to make sure everything was, was uh, rock solid from a, excuse me, from a red tape perspective. And uh, as far as in the development, they spent a lot of time uh, getting us ready for it and supporting us along pretty much the entire way. This was actually basically a course uh, at, in our curriculum. So we had to interview for spots on the teams. We had the teams that we got assigned to. Uh, so like uh, if you wanted to be a game designer, which at our, uh, our school specifically, being a game designer is basically like being a director of a project. You're in charge of all the major decisions. You're the final say on the vision of the game. And you... Um, uh, had to interview for that very stringently because they wanted to make sure that the right person got that job. And uh, same thing for being the lead artist, lead programmer, lead designer, anybody who people had to answer to had to go through an interview process. And Can you tell me about your interview process? Uh, sure. I applied to be game designer and I didn't get it. <laughs> Apparently I, being the curator, obviously, uh, focused a lot on my what I could bring to the team and that's not what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear me talk about the team itself, what my the, my team members' contributions had been and, you know, uh, my understanding of the value of the other people on the team and how it was more of a collaborative effort, things like that. And I was very much in the interview, like, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll be the best lead ever, yay. And they wanted me to be a little bit, um, I don't know if humble is the right word, but definitely more uh, cognizant of the contributions of my teammates. Uh, or at least in a very vocal way, you know, talk more about what my team does. Is that feedback that they gave you after you went through the interview process or something that you've discerned later on? Uh, a bit of both. Uh, 
a lot of the feedback that I got was primarily because I went and found the people who interviewed me and I asked them what had gone wrong. They were not, like, they didn't find me after the fact and be like, hey, just so you know. Uh, I requested a meeting with them and I was like, what happened? And they told me basically what I just said. And, you know, I filled in a little bit before that myself because I... I like to be aware of what my flaws are, even if fixing them is very difficult. It's good to, you know, it's good to constantly be aware of how you can improve as a person. And how did that affect your dynamic on the team while you were there? Was that kind of in your mind or did you, were you able to kind of move past it? Uh, absolutely. It was in my mind. I definitely worked past it. Uh, it took longer than I would have liked, but um, I was a little bit bitter that I wasn't like the director because I consider myself to be a very capable leader. Uh, and I thought that there was a lot that I could bring to the project, but I ultimately took more of a side role. And I, it's, it's funny because eventually I did become a lead for, I think, the first time. I don't know if this has ever happened at the Guildhall. Uh, it might have. I haven't heard about it. Uh, I was made a lead after we formed the team because somebody had to focus on story. So I was made lead narrative designer. Um, and that's why I took, you know, I did all the writing and the story developments and like that uh, because they, they, we only had enough resources to devote one person to it full time. So I just took that upon myself. Um, and again, I, I, I still feel like I could have brought a lot to the team, but our game designer, Tyler Morgan, did a really great job, and he's very good at bringing people together in a way that I feel like I still lack. So ultimately, I believe the, uh, the school made the correct decision in their choices for the team leads and the positions. Uh, I was definitely bitter about it, but in a very like respectful way. Like, oh, I get it, you guys. Thank you. Uh. But, um, but ultimately, yeah, I mean, we had a really great team dynamic, and uh, I was a very loud voice on the team, which uh, early in the project was a little bit of a detriment to our process because uh, there was a lot of people that weren't loud as people. Like, they, they were very reserved and, and uh, introspective, and they felt that a lot of people were being talked over. Uh, and I was definitely not helping that, and that was another one of the, that was one of the things that I had to come to really uh, to come to terms with really early and fix. Uh, and a lot of my, because we actually had peer evaluations during the project, like at a real, a real company, uh, to let us know about our progress and pro issues that our teammates had with us. And that was one of my big ones was you're very, you have good ideas, but you're very loud. <laughs> like I said, I, I like to think that I'm not the curator, but, <laughs> but yeah. Well, that's awesome. I mean, this game looks great. What is next for you? I mean, it's, this is obviously an impressive addition to any portfolio. So are you using it as you apply to different game companies? And what are you, what are you looking for? Uh, so I actually already have a job. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I signed an offer with Studio Wildcard, the guys that make uh, Ark Survival Evolved. Uh, they're going to be doing some really cool stuff. And they, uh, they, they saw my portfolio and a lot of the other. And actually, a lot of my independent work uh, got me noticed, which I would highly recommend anybody who wants to get into the game industry. Uh, ind independent projects that focus on a cool seed idea you have that you just want to see to completion, proving that you can be like, hey, that sounds cool, and bring it all the way to showing it to somebody and having it playable is incredibly important, especially for technical designers uh, and system designers as well, uh, if you consider those to be two different things, which that depends on the company. But um, Is that what you'll be at um, Studio Wildcard? Yes. Uh, I'll be primarily doing uh, blueprint implementations of gameplay systems and things like that. Uh, very, fun. <laughs> very cool. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And here's Taylor Pate, another graduate of Guildhall and an artist on the Gravitas team. So my name is Taylor Pate. I'm from the Guildhall at SMU, which is in Plano, Texas. Our game Gravitas is a first-person puzzle game where basically you're navigating the art gallery of a mad artist who's using you to, like, view his exhibits. And so you use gravity powers in order to manipulate cubes and traverse your way through the museum. And what's your, what's your role on the team? I was an artist. 
Um, I did the rigging and the animation on the hand, I did some of the prop work, and I was the voice actress for She, which is the Institute's AI. The Institute? The galleries. Sorry, I'm scattered today, so my wording's going to be off. I imagine. Is it really, like, overwhelming to be on the floor? This is my first E3. This is all of our first E3s, actually. So it's, it's been really cool. It's been an experience. There's just a billion people. There's so many. <laughs> I saw Kojima yesterday, and, like, that's taken all of my energy. Kojima? I'm not familiar. Kojima, the, the Metal Gear guy. Yes? I never played the Metal Gear games. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, so, like, you said it's a little overwhelming. Is it... Does that make you feel good about your game, that you're in the presence of, like, Bethesda and Capcom, or kind of very small? It's a little of both, but honestly, right now, the excitement is winning. I mean, look, we're right behind the Square Enix booth. That's the coolest thing. <laughs> this is probably the coolest thing I've ever done. Yeah? <laughs> mm -hmm. What's your, what do you study at SMU? Um, I was in the art creation track, actually, for our grad program. We all just graduated about a month ago. Oh. Yeah, thank you. And then before that, I did a lot of music, actually. So I just kind of tripped and fell into video games, you know, as one does. Were you an avid gamer as a young person, as like a young child, a college student? I, yeah, I started on the Pokemon games, actually, for Game Boy Color, and it just kind of spiraled out of control from there. <laughs> it's, uh... I'm not sure I would describe myself as like a hardcore gamer, just because I don't have the time but I play as many as I can. I enjoy them. Are, did, are you excited for the news about Pokemon Go? I'm excited for Sun and Moon. <laughs> like, oh, Go yeah. is really cool, but Sun and Moon and character customization, I'm, yeah. No, there's that. Persona 5 is, like, in the other hallway. I love, yes, I love the Persona games so much. <laughs> so that's been really cool to, like, just see them. And one thing that, like, our readers are really interested in, like, what have video games taught you? I mean, probably different things over the course of your life and different stages in it. I mean, this goes for making them and playing them, really. But I actually got a lot better at communicating and, like, talking to people through them. Because I'm pretty naturally a quiet, reserved person. But when you get into video games and you find people that like the same games that you do, it's really easy to start talking and to branch out from other subjects to there. And then working on them, you know, you have to communicate with your team almost constantly. So basically, I just threw myself in the deep end and learned how to talk to people. It was hard. It was hard, but it was really useful. So That's it. I mean, there's that con there's that narrative of like video games kind of isolate you. I feel like most people would be surprised that you would say that. Really, I've never felt isolated by it, but that might be because I have a lot of friends who play the same things that I do, and so we're constantly like, "Have you tried this? Have you looked at this level? Um, you know, what are you playing right now?" It's, you know, I never felt like by myself, honestly. And did video games ever play, I mean, obviously they play a role in your schooling now. Did they ever play like a big role in how you worked in school or what, what you were doing in school before now? Um, in the beginning, before I got seriously into like video games as a job and as something to do, it was definitely a really big hobby for me. So like, I would be working on something and I'd be like, okay, I've done all this math, it's time for Dragon Age. 
this is my reward for getting through this. And then I was like, I could make this a job. And then I could just not have to deal with all this, you know? Yeah. And it, it worked out well. And can you tell me a little bit how the college game competition works? So we didn't go the traditional route through this, I think. Because oh, okay. um, we sent our game in, and they were like, okay, we selected you as a finalist. You want to come to E3, which was awesome. But we had to send all the paperwork and stuff through SMU's legal department just to, like, make sure everything was above board. And so it took us... I think we were the last people to accept because that process took so long. So we've just been running around. We never got confirmation emails. We never got anything. So we just showed up and we were like, where do we get badges? What's going on? And everyone was like, who are you? What is this? But it's worked out. We got our booth set up, as you can see. It looks great. Thank you. Got badges, all that. So, you know, they announce the winners at 1030 tomorrow. So cross fingers. I'll be here. Oh, man. I'm, I'm a little nervous. I'd like to win, but... What do you win if you are selected as the winner? I actually have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, being at E3 is, like, prize enough, I think. But if we win tomorrow, I, I probably won't hear what the prize is then either, because I think I'll faint. Well, that's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about the generation of this game? Like, how did it start? How did you guys form a team together to make Gravitas? And why a Mad Artist Gallery? <laughs> so the way the Guild Hall works is we actually do three game projects throughout the course of the, our two years there. So this is actually our third and final game, our capstone. And we had pitched a lot of different games. We actually kind of worked on three before we settled on this one. So you know, coming at this from the artist's perspective. We, all our concept art was for previous ideas, so we winged this whole thing with three pieces of concept art. Fun times, really great. And we knew, we had a pretty fun, like, gravity mechanic thing that we had going, and it was like, you know, this is interesting, you can do puzzle games with this. Where can we put it that it would make sense? And I don't remember who it was that was like, let's have a mad artist gallery. But it started as a joke, it, and it just kind of happened. It was honestly the best fit. And then, you know, it was like, we need more personality on this, so on and so forth, which led to our little cube robot that follows you around. And that spiraled wildly out of control. We have um, full voice work for two characters. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of work. It was good, and I'm glad we did it, and it like helps the game as a whole, but Jesus Christ, man, <laughs> and I needed I'm, a nap like after this. And I'm sure it's like an impressive addition to your portfolio as you apply to different gaming companies, so what's next for you after, after this, and clearly you've already graduated? Um, I mean, I'm definitely job hunting right now. I haven't gotten any offers yet, but... You know, I, we've only been out like a month. I'm not super worried about it. And then we're trying to figure out, we got greenlit on Steam, which is super exciting. Thank That's you. Amazing. And we're trying to figure out how to get it published on there. There's some like legal money stuff going on. So we're talking about forming like a tiny company just so we can get like the licenses and stuff in order to publish it properly because we can't with what we have right now. So that's what we're talking about at the, the moment.
Thanks to Alex and Taylor for taking the time to talk to us. And now, it's time to prepare for ISTE. Listeners, eight members of the EdSearch team will be in Denver from June 26th to 29th, and we'd love to meet you in person. Connect with us by sending us a tweet straight to the at EdSurge Twitter handle if you're going to be in Denver during ISTE. ISTE is nuts. How many people are going? I, okay, well last year I think it was about 13,000, so I'm predicting that this year it'll be about 15,000, and I'm curious to see how many of them are going to take part in the annual ISTE EdTech karaoke session, which might be interesting or might be terrifying, and I'm trying to decide if I'm actually going to take part in that, so we shall see. And with that, I'm Mary Jo Matta. And I'm Blake Montgomery. One last note, if you haven't taken our survey, please, please go to bit.ly slash edsurge on air. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash edsurge on air, like the name of our show. We'll see you next week. I'm Blake Montgomery. This is the Ed Surge Podcast.